Hey there, welcome to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. We've got a great show in store for you this week. We're talking to Danielle Henderson, who was studying for her PhD in feminist theory a few years ago. She started to feel a little burned out. So for fun, she created something called the Feminist Ryan Gosling blog, which is basically what it sounds like. It was pictures of Ryan Gosling combined with feminist theory. It was a huge hit. And these days, she's a TV writer. She's got a new memoir out. It's titled The Ugly Cry. It's really amazing. We're going to talk to her about it. Plus, we've got some poetry from Kavi Akbar. NPR dubbed him Poetry's number one cheerleader, and you are going to hear why coming up. Plus, as if all that weren't enough, we've also got music from the one, the only, Deep Sea Diver. So that is the plan for this week's show. It's going to be a fun one, so don't go anywhere. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hello, Luke. Happy 2022. Happy New Year to you. It's exciting. It's daunting. It can't be worse than 2021, though, so I'm ready for it. Oh, stop it. Toy, toy, toy. (laughs) I am feeling very positive going into 2022. I'm also feeling very positive about this week's round of station location identification examination. You ready to play? Oh, I'm so ready. This is where I give Elena some details about a place where Livewire is on the air, and then you try to guess where I'm talking about. If you get this one this week, we have to just give you, I don't know, the like world title. Like you will oh. have the all-time title for station location identification examination on this one. All right. Legend has it that this historic town began when a prospector's burrow went missing during the night. And when he found the burrow the next morning, <laughs> this isn't very nice, but apparently he picked up a rock to throw it at the burrow and the rock was really <laughs> heavy because it was silver and he had stumbled upon an incredibly rich silver vein in this state. I'm going to say either, is there any other information? Sometimes you have extra hints. Yes. This is something that might actually help you with your kind of interesting set of knowledge. It's also home to the Clown Motel, which is located (gasps) next to a cemetery. And it's supposedly haunted by ghost clowns and miners who uh, were killed in the Belmont Mine Fire. Yeah, the Clown Hotel is the scariest hotel in the country. I don't know what city it's in. It's somewhere in Nevada. I'm going to say Silver City, Nevada. You are pretty close. You're in the right state. It's actually Mm. Tonopah, 
Nevada, where we are on the air on KTPH. I can't believe yeah. you've heard of the Haunted Clown Motel, though. I mean, anybody who takes a certain kind of cross-country road trip, <laughs> a friend of mine really needed a place to stay, and she opted to keep going because the only option was the Clown Motel. But that's probably prejudice because I bet it's a lovely place to stay. Well, it's a lovely place to hear Livewire. They're on KTPH yeah. Radio. So welcome to everybody listening in that part of the world. All right. Speaking of Livewire, should we get to it? Let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, poet Kava Akbar. Linguists teach us that the language that you speak, the, the languages that you learn, sort of terraform your brain and shape the way that you think. And writer Danielle Henderson. You know, I had a very low self-esteem, but I weirdly didn't have a lack of confidence. With music from Deep Sea Diver and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank! Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in from all over the country. Welcome to 2022. We have a great show in store for you this week. Of course, we asked the Livewire listeners a question. It's kind of related to the turning of the new year. Our question, though, was, what are you resolving not to do this year? <laughs> Sometimes what you don't do in a given year is as important as what you right. resolve to do. We're going to hear the listener answers to that question coming up in just a bit. First, though, of course, we've got to start things off with the best news we heard all week. <laughs> This, of course, is our little reminder right at the top of the show that there are good things happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news that you've heard all week? Oh, my goodness, gravy. Okay. You've never sounded more Southern. <laughs> <laughs> it's, because, it's because my emotional center is very Southern because I'm, I have a really hard time telling this story without crying. All right. <laughs> this is a safe space. We're allowed to feel Dang. the whole range of emotion while doing this show. Well, my tears are falling because in Muskogee County, Oklahoma, there is an absolute wonder of a person, a young person named Davon Johnson. He's 11 years old. Regular kid in a lot of ways, loves wrestling, plays with remote control cars, and uh, he wants to become an EMT like his uncle. Well, last month, early December, he was at school in sixth grade by the water fountain and he heard one of his classmates say, I'm choking. And the kid had accidentally inhaled a plastic water bottle cap. Oh my gosh. But Davon knew the Heimlich because of his uncle and because he had, quote, studied it on YouTube. <laughs> and I knew YouTube was good for something. I know. I only use it to like look up makeup tips over 40. I should really <laughs> be doing more productive work like Davon. So he successfully performed the Heimlich on this classmate. But the story doesn't stop there, Luke Burbank. School's over. His mom picks him up. They go home, uh, take a little rest, and then they get in the car to go to church because it's a church night. Uh-huh. As they're driving to church, Davon sees smoke coming from a house that they're driving past, and there's a fire in the back of the house, but it's like external. So he doesn't think, and his mom doesn't think that the people in the house know that the house is on fire. He gets out of the car while his mom's calling 911, knocks on the door. Five people come running out of the house, except one lady's in a walker, and he helps her out of the house, saving the lives of two people in the span of one business day. <laughs> That's Lucas incredible. Magukas. 
I know. And he's he's just so sweet. He, he sounds so he has no idea. He says why everybody is freaking out about this. He got a pizza party. He got a special uh, compensation from the mayor. He was named an honorary member of the Muskogee County Police Department and Sheriff's Office. Oh, my gosh. And his mom says he keeps asking, like, why is everybody making such a big deal about this? This is just what you're supposed to do. And this is the part where I get so verklempt because it's like, can we please like hold on to the 11 year olds inside of all of us who uh-huh. just are like, this is just the thing that you're supposed to do. It just obviously makes the community so much better, even if you're a minor, if you can use that mindset. So, oh, that's incredible. Uh, that is two more lives than I've saved in my 45 years on the planet. Yeah. Davon does that just like on an average Tuesday. Go, Davon. Go, Davon. Go. My best news story from this week is also about a medical intervention by a uh, stranger. <laughs> it is okay. a really odd one out of my hometown of Seattle, Washington. So Seattle got an NHL team this year, which everyone's very excited about. They're called the Kraken, which is a pretty great <laughs> name also for your hockey team. And the Vancouver Canucks were visiting the uh, Seattle Kraken for a game. And their assistant equipment manager, a guy named Brian Hamilton who goes by Red. He was doing his assistant equipment manager thing on the bench, taking care of the uniform, stuff like that. And he hears a knock on that glass that kind of encases the bench. Yeah. And it's a, uh, a young person in Seattle named Nadia Papavici. She's 22 years old. And she is holding up a sign on her cell phone that she has typed into her phone. And it says, the mole on the back of your neck is possibly cancerous. Please go see a doctor. And uh, this guy, uh, Brian Hamilton, said later that he just didn't know what to make of that because, you know, fans try to razz the opposing team. So we didn't know if she was messing with him or trying to get him off his game or what. So he just kind of ignored it. He didn't do or say anything, just went about the rest of the game. But when he finished with the game, it was still in the back of his mind. And so he checked in with the team doctor who took a look at this mole, which turns out to have been actually cancer. And he went to the doctor. He had it removed. The doctor said, uh, we've caught this in time. If you would have waited for, you know, a couple of years on this, could have very well ended your life. Like, we got to (gasps) this at the right moment in time because of this sign (laughs) that this fan (laughs) typed onto her cell phone. So the Vancouver Canucks put out the uh, all call on social media to try to find this young woman. And, of course, the internet did find her. And she... And uh, this equipment manager were reunited recently when the Canucks played again in Seattle. And he thanked her. He thanked her on behalf of his family, on behalf of his mother and father. He also kind of apologized because he said, I didn't really know how to react when you held the sign up. So I was ignoring you, but I was noticing. And she Uh talked about how she didn't want to embarrass him. So she tried to wait until there was no one else around before she (laughs) held up the little message on her phone. This is maybe the best part of the story, though, along with this guy's life being saved. Uh, Nadia Papavici is uh, about to go to med school. Ah, and so she that's had, how she knew. Yeah, she had kind of picked this up along the way somewhere. The Canucks and the Kraken are now giving her 10,000 bucks in scholarship <gasps> for her first year of med school. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that right there, that is the best news that I've heard all week. Hey, speaking of uh, the best news, Elena, before we move on, I just want to mention, starting next week, we're going to be releasing an extra short episode of the Livewire podcast featuring even more best news stories to brighten your week. 
So our first new episode drops on Wednesday. Please check out the LiveWire podcast feed wherever you get that kind of stuff. All right, let's welcome our first guest on over to the show. Uh, He was crowned Poetry's number one cheerleader by NPR. His latest collection, Pilgrim Bell, received rave reviews from The New Yorker, Time Magazine, and The Washington Post. Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Kavi Akbar, recorded in front of a live audience at the Alberta Rose Theater back in October. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Um, this book is is really intriguing, and your use of language in it is really amazing. And then I found out that you were actually born in Iran and that you spoke Farsi as your first language. Came over here at about two and a half, but your parents insisted on speaking English. How did that start to shape your kind of like relationship with language? Yeah, um, thank you for uh, for asking and for having me here. I'm so honored to be here with both of you. Um, yeah, my, when I came, when we came to America, uh, my brother is seven years older than I am, and so he was immediately thrust into American schools. And uh, English as a second language classes weren't then what they are now. You know, I mean, it's hard enough now, um, but back then he was just in a regular old fifth grade classroom. Wow. Um, and so, in an effort to acclimate him to school, they banned speaking Farsi in the household, which was my first language. Um, and so, consequently, we learned English really fast. And I mean, I became a poet, I became a writer, you know, it worked, right. Um, But I also sort of lost my relationship to Farsi, or I lost that sort of fluency with Farsi, you know. Um, So it's weird, you know, linguists teach us that um, the language that you speak, the, the languages that you learn sort of terraform your brain and shape the way that you think, right. And so my brain is sort of terraformed for a way of thinking that I kind of don't quite have access to. Wow. Like the blueprint is Farsi. Right. But they right. built a different house on it. Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is interesting. I mean, there's like a kind of defamiliarist potential there where I'm sort of like staring at everything a little bit cockeyed. But it gives you an amazing perspective. Yeah, yeah. It really I mean, comes through in the book. Yeah, I think that it foregrounded language being a medium. You know, my brother went to school to be an engineer and does computery stuff now. And But, you know, he loved Legos, you know, and he would stick Legos together. And I feel like language was my that, you know, in the exact same way that he would, like, get a, you know, make a spaceship with these 200 blocks and then he would turn it into, like, a house or vice versa, right? Like, I would get some language and I would be like, well, it says that it's supposed to be this, but actually it looks like this to me, you know, and, and it's highlighted the materiality of language. Were you writing poems like a little young person as you were I learning was, language? I was, I was, yeah. My mom has poems that I wrote from, you know, when I was four or five years old. Wow. My first poem, I, we lived all over the place, but I lived in Milwaukee for a spell. Um, and my first published poem was called A Packer Poem. Okay. Uh, about the Green Bay Packers? <laughs> about the Green Bay Packers, yeah. It was published in the, uh, it was published in the local paper. Um, I, I don't remember a lot about the poem, but I remember the last line was because the fans and the players are brothers by Kava Akbar, second grade, you know, and Mrs. Miss, Mrs. Park's class, you know, so I, that, I, I really peaked early, you know. <laughs> that had to come in handy when you wrote poems as a five-year-old for the movie <laughs> The Kindergarten Teacher, yeah. the Maggie Gyllenhaal movie. Yeah, yeah, so I, I wrote poems for as you said, with with the poet Ocean Vuong and the poet Dominique Townsend, um, we wrote poems for this movie. 
um, the kindergarten teacher, uh, which was um, directed by Sarah Colangelo and starring and produced by Maggie Gyllenhaal. It's and an that's about a very incredibly gifted child poet. Yeah, right? a and sort of precocious five-year-old poet, right. And so Ocean and I wrote the poems for this like five-year-old poetry prodigy. And it was a, it's a really interesting constraint, right, to write sort of like formally interesting poems using only vernacular that would be native to a five-year-old, right? right? Because it's not like we couldn't be out here being like, I'm ambiguous about whether I want the cheese crackers or the <laughs> peanut butter, you know, like, yeah. you know, like you, you have to use vernacular that's sort of native to a five-year-old's uh, idiom, right? But you also have to do sort of formally interesting literary poetry. So it's kind of, it's kind of like writing a sonnet or something. You're writing within a received form, right? Yeah. This is Livewire from PRX. We are listening to a conversation we recorded with Kavi Akbar, the poet, back in October about his new poetry collection, Pilgrim Bell. Uh, we have to take a very short break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content, uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels it does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're listening to our interview with the poet Kavi Akbar, which we recorded in front of a live audience in Portland back in October. Check it out. Can we uh, hear a poem from the book? I'm wondering if you could read uh, Reza's Restaurant, Chicago, 1997. Sure, yeah. Um, growing up in the Midwest, there weren't a lot of Iranian anythings around, and so we would take these yearly pilgrimages to the one Persian restaurant, like within a six-hour driving radius. Um, so this is Reza's Restaurant, Chicago, 1997. The waiters milled about, filling sumac shakers, clearing away plates of onion and radish. My father pointed to each person, whispered, Persian, about the old man with the silver beard, whispered, Arab, about the woman with the eye mole, Persian, the teenager pouring water, white, the man on the phone. 
I was eight, still soft as a thumb and amazed. I asked how he could possibly tell when they were all brown-skinned, dark-haired like us. Almost everyone in the restaurant looked like us. He smiled a proud little smile, a warm nest of lips, said, it's easy, said, we're just uglier. He returned to his lamb, but I was baffled, hardly touched my qayma. I had big glasses and bad teeth. I felt plenty Persian. When the woman with light eyes and blonde brown hair left our check, my father looked at me. I said, Arab? He shook his head, laughed. We drove home. I grew up. It took years to put together what my father meant that day. My father, who listened exclusively to the Rolling Stones, who called the Beatles a band for girls. My father, who wore only black, even around the house, whose umbrella made it rain, whose arms could cut chicken wire and make stew and bulged with old farm scars. My father, my father, my father built the world. The first sound I ever heard was his voice whispering whispering the azan in my right ear. I didn't need anything else. My father cherished that we were ugly, and so being ugly was blessed. I smiled with all my teeth. It's Kaveh Akbar. Wow. Was that a, a, a big part of your childhood growing up in the U.S., but being uh, Iranian, the sense of who was and wasn't like you? Yeah, and it's, and it's wild because now I have that. You know, like now I have that sort of like sonar, you know, like I'm like, oh, they're Jordanian and they're Yemeni and, you know, and, and like they're Iranian, you know, like I can really like sense it. And I don't know what it is. And it really took me a long time to unpack. You know, he said they're just uglier. Uh, and, you know, me being like a sort of self-conscious little kid, I was like, oh, well, that sucks, <laughs> you know, like, that sucks for me, you know. But the sort of ugliness was like, um, when you talk about gratitude made wise by having known loss, you know, which I think that we've all experienced a lot of in these past 18 months, it's that sort of ugliness, you know, like, it's almost like a weariness or, you know, there, there's just like a sort of granularity uh, or, or there's like a grain in the facial. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to talk about it, but I get it, you know. And it makes complete sense to me that, like, he who, um, you know, thought Mick Jagger was the coolest person on the planet Earth, but, like, you know, thought Paul McCartney was, like, you know, not for him. You know, like, like it makes sense to me that this would be what he valorized. As a very, very self-conscious kid, it took a long time to sort of settle into embracing that sort of ugliness, like what he was calling ugliness. Uh, this book is titled Pilgrim Bell, and I think there's, like, six poems that are, that are the poems themselves are titled Pilgrim Bell... Why did you choose to do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's sort of like the ringing of a bell, right? Like, it's, it, it reverberates. Um, there's something about the bell that interests me, just broadly speaking. A bell is like a sort of spiritual technology that moves from the weight of a human body. You know, you pull the rope and the bell sort of clangs, right? And it makes this sound. It's a spiritual sound, right? It's like a call to pray. It's a call to worship. It's whatever that may be, right? But it's, it's the heft of the human body that makes it move, right? And sometimes, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but like if you've ever like tugged on one of those really old bells, it'll, it'll actually lift you up. That, that was really interesting to me when I'm thinking about poetry as a kind of spiritual technology that might 
thin the partition between me and whatever the divine that I might hope to address with it might be, whether that divine is like a capital G God or my dad or my country or my beloved or my loneliness or justice or, you know, whatever, whatever that divine might be in any given iteration. I think that the technology of the poem helps thin that partition for me. When you were talking about the body, it made me think about those of us who are here and got to see you reading the poem. That poem was in your body. Like there was a there was a, a rotational force to reciting it, not just your voice, but a poetry book, the book that I read in order to come here. I, I didn't have that experience. You know, I, I read that poem as this still, you know, typefaced thing. So how do you make the transference from having this poem that sort of lives in your body to the page? Or is it like vice versa, like you put it on the page and then you find a place for it in your body. Yeah, that's such a beautiful and perceptive question and one that I don't know that I have. I mean, that's a very sort of here be dragons kind of question. You know, I wish, yeah. I mean, I could sort of, I could sort of, you know, lay some language This is the part it. of the show where I pretend I know what everyone's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> me too, me too. Um, no, truly. Um, but you know, like, like you're literate, right? Like you're capable of like, I wrote this book, I can hand it to you and you can read these poems and I can read out loud the poems in your book, right? But, um, but the reason that we ask the person who wrote the poem to read them out loud is that you're hoping that they might be able to connect with some of the catalytic energy that brought the poem into the world in the first place. Right, like a band. Like exactly, exactly, band, right? Yeah. Like, like we can all sing Let It Be, right? But when you hear, I don't know why I'm stuck mm. on this like Beatles thing, but, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, like we can all sing this song, right? But like there's, there's like a timber in the voice of the person who wrote it right, that allows them to access something in the catalytic experience of having written that, right? And so, like, there's something in, like, there's something in me reading this poem that, you know, if the reading is optimal, allows me to reconnect with whatever that spark was that kind of ignited the poem's entrance into the world. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, could we actually get another poem from the yeah. book? Could you uh, read uh, How Prayer Works? Yeah, yeah. Um, How Prayer Works. Tucked away in our tiny bedroom, so near each other, the edge of my prayer rug covered the edge of his. My brother and I prayed. We were 18 and 11, maybe, or 19 and 12. He was back from college where he built his own computer and girls kissed him on the mouth. I was barely anything, just wanted to be left alone to read and watch The Simpsons. We prayed together as we had done thousands of times, rushing ablutions over the sink, laying our jonamazas out toward the window facing the elm, which one summer held an actual crow's nest full of baby crows, fuzzy black beak fruit. They were miracles we did not think to treasure. My brother and I hurried through sloppy postures of praise, quiet as the light pooling around us. The room was so small, our twin bed took up nearly all of it. And as my brother, tall and endless, moved to kneel, his foot caught the coiled brass doorstop, which issued forth a loud brong. The noise crashed around the room like a long, wet bullet shredding through porcelain. My brother bit back a smirk, and I tried to stifle a snort, but solemnity ignored our pleas. We erupted, laughter quaking out our faces into our bodies and through the floor. We were hopeless, laughing at our laughing, our glee, an infinite rope fraying off in every direction. 
It's not that we forgot God or the martyrs or the prophet's holy word. Quite the opposite, in fact, we were boys built to love what was right in front of our faces. My brother and I draped across each other, laughing tears into our prayer rugs. Kaveh Akbar, reading from Pilgrim Bell. Uh, I think NPR described you as poetry's number one cheerleader <laughs> because you started this really great poetry website and, and you wrote a poetry column uh, for the Paris Review. I guess I'm curious, why does poetry need a cheerleader? Like, you never hear someone as fiction's number one cheerleader. No, you don't. Like, the reaction in this room to you reading that is as powerful as any reaction we get for any reading. And yet poetry is this thing where it's like... Everyone's really hoping good things for poetry. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. To be honest, I don't really know what that is either. I think poetry's doing just fine. Um, you know, the earliest attributable author in human literature is Enhidwana, who wrote in 2300 BCE, um, which means that for 43 centuries it's been doing just fine. And it will, you know, and it has existed millennia before me, and it will continue long after the last person has forgotten my name. So I don't, I don't know what that is. That sort of like, you know, I used to be a middle school teacher, and it was the same sort of like, oh, that's so good of you, you know, like like that sort of like kind of weird condescension. And um, I will say that it is a profound privilege to be able to be of service to that which I love best in this world, which is poetry. Um, I think that that's a great way to spend a life is sort of joyfully serving that which you love best. But um, but yeah, I mean, if, if I disappeared from the face of the earth, poetry would be just fine. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> well, we hope you don't disappear too soon because this is a great book and we look forward to the next one. It's Pilgrim Bell by Kave Akbar. Thanks for coming on Live. Thanks so much, Luke. Thanks so much, Luke. This is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Of course, we like to ask the Livewire listeners a question each week. As we are sort of entering 2022, we wanted to ask the listeners, what's something you're resolving not to do this year? Elena has been collecting up those responses. We've got some for us now. What are you seeing? <laughs> How about this one from Liz? Liz says, I will not spend more brain space on useless celebrity gossip when I can't even remember my own husband's phone number. <laughs> Why are our brains wired the way they are, Elena, so that mm -hmm. they prioritize the least important information over things like that? I have an Outlook calendar with all the birthdays of my family members and loved ones because I would not be able to remember it. But I could tell you, what Edgar Martinez was batting in like 1992 for the Mariners. <laughs> I know the words to every single TV theme song from like 1970 to about 1996, but uh, I don't know any of my pin numbers. So, <laughs> all right, what's something else our listeners are resolving to not do? Ooh, listen to this one from Angie. Angie says, I will not borrow cash from my daughter's piggy bank without her consent. <laughs> That's a dangerous game. I mean, I can imagine, like, you know, you're about to go downtown to do some shopping, mm -hmm. and you know that the parking meter only takes coins, and there's that beautiful little pig full of change sitting right there. You've got to be careful, though, because there is a coin shortage. Huh. 
So make sure you're only taking money out of your kid's piggy bank that's easily gotten again if you want to replace it. (laughs) All right, one more before we move on. Oh, how about this one from Josh? Josh says, I will not share my opinion on things I don't fully understand. What a great great note for for those of us who sometimes fall into the category of mansplaining. It's basically a vow of silence, you know? <laughs> like, the only thing I understand is, like, how to get any stain out of anything and, like, what makes a cat puke. So, like, I don't think... Well, the thing about having this job that we have is we do end up consuming a fair amount of information for the various yeah. guests we're going to interview, stuff like that. And so when those topics come up, it's hard for me to not want to weigh in with the at least small amount of knowledge that I have on it. So yeah. I'm kind of insufferable at dinner parties because I'm often saying, well, the interesting thing about that, and then I give the like one inch deep of knowledge that I have on the topic. You're also probably stealing a lot of money out of the coin jars. That of too. The That's why I've been disinvited to a number of <laughs> dinner parties. All right. Well, thanks to everyone who wrote in with their responses. To that question, we'll have another audience question for next week's show, which you'll hear in just a few minutes. Our next guest is a television writer and the creator of the very popular feminist Ryan Gosling blog. The Associated Press calls her latest book, uh, which is a memoir, The Ugly Cry, equal parts hilarious and heartbreaking as it examines the complexity of identity, family, childhood, and independence. Uh, Let's take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Danielle Henderson, which we recorded as part of the Portland Book Festival back in November. This book is uh, is really incredible, Danielle. Um, it, it's it's so moving and it's also uh, so funny because your voice is so is so great and kind of inimitable in it. If we're going to sort of talk about the themes of of love and loss, though, I guess in this book the kind of loss part is the the loss of your mother when you were a child. Not that she died, but that she kind of abandoned you and your brother. And then the the love part would be your grandmother, uh, who is really the central character in the book, aside from you, I guess, and had a really a unique grandmotherly manner, <laughs> her way of showing love or, or like not seeming to show it. Can you kind of like describe yeah. her personality? Um, it is, it's completely accurate and completely okay to point out that I, I am not the star of my own memoir. She absolutely <laughs> is. Um, she is the toughest person I've ever met. Um, she's a little bit of a maniac. She loves horror movies. Um, she is, she's fiercely always been exactly who she is and encouraged me to do the same and kind of didn't let me rest on my laurels at all. Um, And even though she didn't quite understand fully what I was experiencing as a child, um, she was a very steady hand in my, in my life. And um, I love her. I love her a lot. (laughs) Um, She's 88 now and uh, she has dementia and uh, I just bought a house and moved home so that she could live with me. So, um, Yeah, I bought a little farm. I'm, I see that on Twitter, and we need more videos. I just saw a video of you dragging a log through a field, <laughs> which was like a, it was like a moment of zen. So if you could start to update the content, that would really be awesome, Danielle. You got it. I mean, it's winter, so that's happening on a regular basis now. But um, yeah, she really um, she stepped in in a way that I didn't know that I needed and I had never seen before. So when I was growing up, it felt like, wildly out of place to have um, my grandmother be my primary parent, but also to be, again, like 
like borderline insane. (laughs) (laughs) She is a wild one. And she, I think, had to learn a lot of lessons herself and how to survive Mm -hmm. in the world. Um, And the way that she passed them down to me was kind of weird, but they were completely necessary and allowed me to be a fully realized and totally independent person way before most people I knew. I love in the book when you call her the love of your life. And it was great to hear all these moments where, you know, even though it's kind of the 90s, your parental figure is letting you own your body. You know, you shave your head. She's all right with it, even though she gives you a lot of sass about it. And (laughs) (laughs) what kinds of things do you think you're sort of still carrying from the upbringing from this incredibly iconoclastic figure? I think it is exactly that kind of thing where I, I... I fully live and inhabit my body because I've always had, um, from her pers- from from that perspective, I've always had control over what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I remember saying, um, and I did include this story in the book, but when I was very young, like you know, seven years old, I, we were walking to school, and I told her I didn't want to have kids, and um, she was like, "What are you talking about? What do you even know about kids?" And I'm like, "Absolutely not. I'm not doing this." Um, and she never pushed me. She never pushed me. Wow. And she, there are a lot of people I know who. Um, decided they didn't want children and their families were not okay with that decision. But my family never uh, made me feel bad about that. And, um, you know, yeah, there's things like the tattoos and and stuff, stuff that I've done that are I later regretted and maybe should have listened to some of that advice. <laughs> um, you know, I had a very low self-esteem, but I weirdly didn't have a lack of confidence. Mm-hmm. And it's a strange mix, mm-hmm. very strange friction to live with. Um, but I, I knew that it was okay and maybe even better for me to be who I wanted to be, even if it was out of place and out of step with the world most, most of the time. Uh, most of your childhood was spent in Warwick, New York, or at least the, a lot of the parts you write about in this book, where you as a black person were very much in the minority. What I thought was interesting about this memoir, though, is certainly you have some stories in there of really awful things happening and other ways that you were sort of othered. But I also kind of feel like race, did your experience as a black person didn't seem to be the most central part of the book or at least the only part of the book? Did I read that right? Like, how did you want that to fit into what you were doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it, it's it's a, a kind of a, um, I don't wanna say it's a flaw that I have, but I'm, I'm very quick to always say, well, p- other people have it worse than I did. You know, like I don't like to, to, I don't ever wanna be the mouthpiece or the spokesperson for a particular kind of experience or emotion because other people feel things more deeply and have deeper issues than I've had. However, um, my race in this town and growing up in a town where I was so distinctly othered um, felt made me feel powerless. And I didn't, in order to kind of regain some of my power and regain some of my own, um, you know, my, my ability to kind of connect with my own race, I, have, I had to reframe my own narrative a little bit um, in my life. And so when it came to writing this book, I realized that the things that affected me and this again is not to say racism didn't affect me deeply it absolutely did and continues to um but i really wanted to focus more on the the kind of stories i've never really read before which is you know the a young black girl who has depression and who has a different family structure and who has other things contributing to that and you know racism is something that just contributes to that so i i tended to focus more on um those other elements because it's it's a story that i hadn't seen before that i was interested in Uh, I think it's interesting that you have become a successful TV writer and somebody who's really known for your ability to kind of blend pop culture and academic criticism with feminist Ryan Gosling. When 
the I, maybe the anecdote that was most one of the more powerful anecdotes in the book to be was trying to watch TV when you were a kid and your mom coming home and opening the door and going, were you watching TV? And you say no. Oh, and yeah. then she goes and feels the back of the TV because <laughs> that was exactly the move my dad, Walter Burbank, would always do. Same. And yeah. that was so universal to me. It's, it's interesting that even though there were, there were rules around using the electricity when the adults weren't there and stuff like that, it sounds like pop culture was still a hugely important part of your life as a, as a kid growing up. What did it mean to you and what did it do for you? Absolutely huge. And I think, again, that's something that my family cultivated within me because music, first and foremost, was a very important part of my family structure. You know, getting together on a Saturday, cleaning the house, you put the Donna Summer album on, mm -hmm. and then I'm looking at the whole album cover and wondering what's going on. And <laughs> it's, it was a huge part of my family life to have music be everywhere. And um, I didn't learn this fact until I was in my, my mid-30s, mid um, but my great-grandfather played piano during the, the Harlem Renaissance, and he was a big jazz pianist, and he um, was engaged to Billie Holiday and toured Whoa. with Billie Holiday. So we put on these jazz records and, you know, nobody said anything. <laughs> but now I have, I have a couple of his albums. Yeah, that was kind of like my entry point. But also because my grandmother loves movies, she would do anything to make sure that she could watch whatever movies she wanted. And we just got the, ben the, the benefit of that. So we always had HBO, we always had MTV. Um, and she, I think that was kind of the way that she related to the modern world. So we would watch MTV together and she didn't like any of it, but it was how <laughs> she kind of related to, to what was going on in the world. Um, so I was really free to develop my own pop culture identity. Um, so yeah, I think it, it was kind of great that, that I had that experience because pop culture saved my life when I was a kid. <laughs> you know, I write very deeply about the magazine Sassy. Um, and it's because it really did. I mean, it was, it's hard to convey to people who now have the internet at their fingertips. But when you're a little weird black kid in Warwick, New York, and it means the world to open a magazine and see people discussing the things that are interesting to you, who look like you, who um, encourage you and support you. So I think that pop culture became a big part of my love language, you know, like for, for myself. And I have always been deeply entrenched in it. Could not tell you anything happening recently. <laughs> like I've now, I've, I've crossed over. I feel like I've mm -hmm. gone to the shadow land where, you know, somebody will mention uh, an actor in a movie and I'm like, huh? Right. <laughs> what? Like, I have no idea who anybody is anymore. Um, we've already mentioned it a few times, but for the, you know, 10 people who aren't aware of, of sort of what it is, what is the uh, feminist Ryan Gosling blog and then book? Like, what, what were you seeking to do there? Um, I was seeking to survive my my master's degree program, uh, <laughs> uh, which was so heavily theoretical and not fun at all. And um, it was my homework. So I would read these theories and read these, you know, theorists and want to remember them and try to remember them. And I just wanted to have some fun with it. Uh, so I created a Tumblr and, you know, Ryan Gosling was kind of in the zeitgeist. And um, I just made like flashcards for myself. And it genuinely took off overnight. It was on Jezebel the next day. I was coming home from the mm. farmer's market on the bus and my <laughs> phone was kind of blowing up. I'm like, what's going on? And somebody hurt, what's happening? And every, my friend's kind of, you're on Jezebel, oh my God. <laughs> but I mean, would it be overstating to say that sort of changed the course of your life? I mean, otherwise you'd be a professor somewhere teaching, you know, maybe gender studies or something like that? 
Well, that was part of the reason that I did, um, I jumped at the chance to turn it into a book, which I wrote over my first winter break, um, because I knew I'd have a calling card if I did that. If it stayed on the internet, it would just kind of disappear. But if I had a book, I could, you know, start to make some headway with it. And um, I did want to teach. I, I wanted to be a, an academic. And I I um, applied and got into uh, quite a few doctoral programs. And I chose one that wasn't really a good fit in a place that I didn't really love. So I left after the first semester, but I was able to continue to use that book to get freelance writing work. And that definitely changed my life um, because my television agents found me through my freelance writing work about television. I'm curious, you know, your grandmother was somebody who seems, at least the way that you write about her, in a way deeply, I don't want to say not sympathetic, but she just seemed to not be uh, somebody who was overly coddling of you or, 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 or demonstrative in this, what we think of as the grandmotherly way. She had a really different vibe. Do you think some of that was to mask the fact that she felt a lot of things really deeply, but it was just felt more tolerable for her to kind of just be tough on you? I do think so. Um, I, and, and she was mean. Maybe I was trying to sugarcoat it. I mean, she says some pretty mean things to you in the book. She was flat out mean and often cruel. Like, I was really was trying to kind of soft pedal it there and I maybe went too far. I appreciate that diplomacy, but no, she was really mean. And what's bizarre is that now she's in this space where, you know, because of her dementia, she regresses a lot and there's a lot of emotional fluctuation in her day. And she's so much more more vulnerable than she's ever been. She didn't want us, you know, her kids, her grandkids, she didn't want any of us to grow up in a world where we felt like we had to believe any of the, the racism that was being thrown at us. And she wanted us to be smart and strong and capable. And I think that her way of doing that was to try to fortify that emotional life and try to make it crystal clear that, you know, you are who you depend on. And if you, you have to clean your side of the street and you have to keep yourself um, in check because the world won't do it for you, which is a heartbreaking lesson to learn as a kid. I wish I had a few more years before I learned that lesson, um, but it was accurate. It was really true. And I think, again, it set me on a path to um, self-sufficiency that I, that I appreciate for, for sure. Well, we are, we're very happy that you ended up where you ended up, Danielle, because the writing is amazing. And uh, this uh, memoir, The Ugly Cry by Danielle Henderson is a, a must read. Thank you for the incredible questions and for guiding me in this wonderful interview. I really, really had fun. That was Danielle Henderson right here on Livewire. That interview was recorded as part of the Portland Book Festival. Her memoir, The Ugly Cry, is available now. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back with more Livewire. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, our musical guest this hour is a Seattle rock band that's received acclaim for their power and presence uh, and their larger-than-life guitar hooks. 
Their third full-length album, Impossible Weight, is out right now. Take a listen to this. It's Deep Sea Diver performing in front of a live audience last month at Revolution Hall here in Portland, Oregon. Hello. Hello, hello. Nice to see you all. Nice to see you again. Um, I read, uh, uh, Jessica, a, a magazine piece about you where they called you a quiet giant of indie music. Ooh. How's that? It's one of the nicer things. Really? <laughs> no, I don't know what the quiet part means. But yeah, that's what I was wondering about. Have you been just quietly, uh, you know, a giant force in indie music? <laughs> um, not by choice, but... <laughs> I mean, it is interesting, though, because, like, looking at your bio and all of the things that you've been involved with, along with Deep Sea Diver and Beck and The Shins, and like, you've really kind of seen it all in the music industry. You feel like that's, that experience has been good for you, fronting this band and kind of knowing the industry? Absolutely. I think kind of playing with all of those people, like, by osmosis, I just kind of just, like, want to soak everything in and, and implement certain things with songwriting and, like, how I perform and how I can push myself in the band, and so... It's been so beneficial to play with other people. Yeah. What song are we going to hear? Impossible Weight, the title track. All right, well, this is Deep Sea Diver here on Livewire.
It's an impossible way So I'll just let you down now That was Deep Sea Diver here on Livewire playing live at Revolution Hall last month in Portland. Their latest album is Impossible Weight, and it's available right now. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. We're going to talk to Connor Ratliff about his incredible podcast, Dead Eyes. This podcast, Elena, made like all of the end of year, like 10 best podcasts. It's really incredible. It's him trying to figure out why Tom Hanks fired him from the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers over what Tom Hanks was heard to say were Connor's dead eyes. He's been trying to figure this out for like 20 years. <laughs> it's a great show. Uh, we're also going to uh, talk to Mickey Kendall about her book, Hood Feminism, uh, which proposes a more inclusive, intersectional version of the women's movement. And then we're going to hear some music from the legendary Ani DeFranco. I couldn't even believe we were able to get Ani DeFranco. That whole lineup is amazing. I know, Good right? Lord. <laughs> it's going to be even more amazing because we're going to be asking for your response to our listener question, dear Livewire listeners. Elena, what are we asking them for next week's show? What is the most impactful thing anyone has ever said about you? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Talk about impossible weight. The name of the yeah. Deep Sea Diver album. Boy, that's, <laughs> that's intense. All right, we'll see what people say. Uh, go ahead and hit us up on social media. We're at Livewire Radio with your responses. All right, that is going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so much to our guests, Kavi Akbar, Danielle Henderson, and Deep Sea Diver. Special thanks also this week to Amanda Bullock and the Portland Book Festival. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Stephanie Moore is our social media manager. Our house band is Sam Tucker, Ethan Fox Tucker, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. And our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Gary Muller of Salem, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Livewire. When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on 
the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much. If you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 